what's the responsibility of individuals versus the responsibility of society or government to help people on a positive trajectory. And I think it's some of both. And I don't have much patience for those who say it's all one or all the other. Hello, I'm Jeff Cabaservis for the Niskanen Center. Welcome to the Bible Center podcast, where we try to sort through the problems of the muddled, moderate majority of Americans drawing upon history, biography, and current events. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Isabel Sawhill, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. She's a true legend among policy wonks, one of the nation's foremost and most respected analysts on a wide range of economic and social issues, including fiscal policy, economic growth, poverty and inequality, welfare reform, and family stability. She was formerly a senior fellow at the Urban Institute and has been a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School and director of the National Commission for Employment Policy. From 1993 to 1995, she served as an associate director at the Office of Management and Budget, where she oversaw the human resource programs of the federal government, accounting for one-third of the federal budget. And she is the author of numerous policy papers, articles, and books, including most recently, The Forgotten Americans, An Economic Agenda for a Divided Nation. Welcome, Belle. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, I've wanted to bring you on this podcast for a long time, for many reasons, but also because, as my introductory spiel tried to convey, this pod's focus is on political moderation. And I was particularly intrigued when I reread The Forgotten Americans, which came out in 2018, uh, that you wrote, I reject both far-right and far-left ideas in favor of a radical centrist approach. Radical combined with centrist may sound like an oxymoron, but it doesn't need to be. And that formulation is to me like catnip is to a cat. <laughs> um, but before we address that, can you tell me about what you had in mind before the 2000 election when you started writing this book, The Forgotten Americans, and how your perspective changed after Donald Trump's election? Well, like a lot of people, I was really shocked when he was elected. You know, none of us or most of us didn't expect he would be elected back in 2016. Then I wanted to know, how could that have happened? Why was he elected? And like a lot of people, I decided that there had been a lot going on for quite a, quite a while in our country that made it ripe for a Donald Trump. People had lost faith in government. They were becoming more divided, divided economically, divided culturally, divided politically, and he spoke to some uh, resentments amongst a quite a large group of mainly white working class Americans. And so I decided to focus on this issue and that group and try to figure out if there was a way to uh, reach out to them, uh, find uh, policies and politics that would work for them and also for the rest of the country. And that was my goal in, in the book. And I guess that on your theme of moderation or the idea that I'm a radical centrist, hmm. I was, um, one way I would put it, as I was trying to marry red state values with blue state policies. And because I thought that the people on the right were actually putting out the right messages and talking about the right values that a majority of the public could uh, endorse. But I thought they were pretty bad on coming up with specific policies that were pragmatic and could actually improve people's lives. And people on the left, in the meantime, I think were bad at messaging, 
bad at values, but really good at designing effective policies. So I wanted to try to find some mesh between the two. You could call it a purple agenda. Who are the forgotten Americans uh, in your conception? Uh, Well, it is a little bit arbitrary, but in order to be able to uh, measure stuff, I said that they were people without college degrees. They were mostly working class. They had incomes below the median, meaning below about $70,000 a year in um, 2018. And they were, um, you know, sort of mostly the white working class. And they voted for Trump by an overwhelming majority. I think it was 67% to 28% for Hillary Clinton. And there had never been uh, anything like that kind of a gap in voting behavior. And of course, those are the people who used to vote for Democrats. And so Democrats have been you know, wringing their hands and saying to themselves, how did we lose this group and what have we done wrong? So I'm sure we'll get into that, but I would love to hear something first about where you grew up, uh, what your early influences were, and how you came to focus on the issues that have defined your career. Well, I actually was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up here. I've lived um, all around the country subsequently, but I have my roots here. I came from a comfortable family. I was well-educated, but I was also a woman of my times. And by that, I mean that I am much older than I'm sure most of your guests, and I'm not even a baby boomer. I'm older than the baby boomers. A silent generation person, like Joe Biden. I grew up in a time when there weren't a lot of opportunities for women. So I had this good education But my first job was as a secretary. Actually, my first job was as a file clerk. I later got promoted to being a a secretary. After my father sent me to secretarial school and I got my certificate in typing and shorthand. And then I got married fairly young. And uh, my husband was um, in a training program on Wall Street and I was jealous you know, here I was pounding the typewriter every day, and he was learning all this new stuff, and being paid to do it. And so I would complain bitterly to him. And he finally said, stop whining and go out and do something about it. And I might not have liked that at the time, but he was exactly right. So I went back to school at night. I eventually got a PhD in economics. And after that, I worked in a bunch of different government jobs off and on, and later ended up um, uh, directing the commission that you mentioned, the Commission on Employment Policy, and was in the think tank world, first at the Urban Institute, uh, later at Brookings. I've been at Brookings now for over 20 years. I was vice president for economic policy there, then headed up a center on children and families, and now I'm just a senior fellow. But along the way, I, as you mentioned, served in the Clinton administration and had responsibility for all of the, basically all of the social programs of the federal government. And I just learned a ton about both policy and politics during my various periods in in government, first as a civil servant, but later as a political appointee. Your complete CV is on the Brookings website. It extends to something like 40 pages. 
Uh, <laughs> you've written and done a lot. Um, but looking at the fine point there, it appears that you attended Wellesley College for three years without graduating. That's correct. And the reason is because, again, um, back in the uh, 1950s and 60s, if you were a woman, uh, what you were told is you should get a ring by spring or your money back. <laughs> uh, your aspiration was to be a wife and a mother and to catch a good husband. And I was fortunate enough to catch a great one. So as soon as he graduated from Princeton, I said to hell with this college stuff. I really didn't like it. I cut a lot of my classes. I played bridge all the time. I drank too much. I did a lot of dating and uh, socializing, and I didn't learn very much, which I greatly regret now. But I did accomplish something, which I got married to a great guy. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. Then I realized that being a wife and a mother was not everything it was cracked up to be, or let me put it differently. It wasn't well-suited to my temperament. I needed more than that. You know, um, of course, the Seven Sisters School for Women in the 1950s uh, often are, are educational institutions that those who attended them look back to with considerable nostalgia, uh, because this is a time when many of the Ivy League schools, like Princeton, Yale, Harvard, were not co-educational. That's right. And therefore, the intellectual caliber of the women's schools was, was often of an equal or superior to those schools. Um, however, it doesn't seem you had quite that same positive impression of Wellesley as Well, no, I don't, I don't think it was Wellesley's fault. I think it was my fault. I think Wellesley was a very good school, and I had very good professors if I'd only known enough to um, pay attention to them. But I didn't know enough. I was pretty naive and pretty immature back in those days. So I had to learn the hard way that I should have paid more attention. Uh, I mean, you know, if you looked at my average grade level at Wellesley, it was dismal. <laughs> so there was a, a point in The Forgotten Americans where you actually did say something about uh, your own life story. You said you and your husband were relatively in straightened circumstances. You ate a lot of tuna casseroles. Mm -hmm. You drove a secondhand Ford. Uh, you borrowed money from your parents when you weren't able to pay the rent on your apartment in Brooklyn. You worked at a clerical job. And then I guess you and your husband both ended up going to graduate school at night. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So you got a PhD as well as your BA from New York University uh, in the 1960s. And you got your PhD in 1968. And that was a time when women were not encouraged to become graduate students because the assumption was that they would not be hired. I was the only woman in my PhD class. And so those obstacles were real. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you had to be pretty damn motivated to stick with it. Uh, but at that point, I was. My motivation shifted a lot after I got married. And, you know, after getting, you know, B minuses and C pluses, I started getting A's and A pluses. And what part of economics were you most interested in at that time? Um, you know, I was interested in all of it. I actually took a lot of business school courses, um, but I think I took just about everything. And I, I didn't really focus in on sort of social policy issues until I was quite a lot older. So I wouldn't say I was uh, had some passion for a particular part of economics when I was, you know, in my early 20s. Say. And you did manage to get a job, I assume, coming out of that PhD program, uh, working for the government as a policy analyst. 
That's right. I actually took the civil service exam and got a civil service rating. It was a GS-14. And I first worked at um, HHS, actually, for Mansur Olson and uh, Alice Rivlin, and uh, who were both, you know, mentors and inspirations to me. And then I later went to OMB as a civil servant. This was long before I became a political appointee, much later. And then I went uh, finally to the Urban Institute after that. And when you say HHS, the department would have been Health, Education, and it Welfare. Back at that time. HEW in those days. Oh, you're too young to know, even know that, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting uh, story. Uh, I think Ovita Kalpabi, who was a woman, was the first head of HEW, mm-hmm. getting that right. And then people like Marion Folsom came along. Who was who was secretary during your time? Was that Ellie Richardson's period? Uh, no, let's see. No, it was... Um, uh, John Gardner, I think maybe just before I came, I'm trying to remember now. Oh, and then there was Wilbur Cullen. Right. For whom the building is named now, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, you mentioned Alice Rivlin. She is somebody who is, again, legendary sort of inside the Beltway and not well known at all outside of it. Um, and I have been reading some of her posthumously published book called Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. And mm-hmm. she mentions in there that you were friends and talked to each other practically daily um, and and helped to define each other's ideas. Can, can you just tell me something about Alice Rivlin and who she was? Well, Alice was a no-nonsense person. Uh, she was very smart, obviously, but her communication skills were really excellent, particularly her written communication skills. And we wrote books together. We worked on fiscal policy together. And I think we wrote two books together on fiscal policy. Uh, That was before the most recent book that you mentioned. It was published posthumously. And she was um, always supportive of me. And I took a lot from watching her. I had very few role models. But she was one of the role models when I was younger. And so I looked up to her and wanted to be like her. And um, I was thrilled when I was able to, uh, or invited to go to Brookings and be colleagues with people like her. And um, in the early days when I was at Brookings, there, you know, all of the greats were there. It was was an amazing place to be. So Alice Rivlin served as deputy director of OMB from 93 to 94, and then director from 94 to 96 during the Clinton administration. Um, besides her clarity of oral expression uh, and written expression, what was it that you admired about her and wanted to be like her? Well, she was tough-minded, and um, if she didn't agree with something, she wasn't going to sugarcoat it. And she was also always going to go to um, a common-sense explanation and solution to any problem. She didn't get hung up by sort of academic um, ideas and uh, ways of writing. She was very optimistic. She even at the time she died, and you can pick this up in the book you just alluded to, thought that we could come together as a country she wanted bipartisan solutions. She wanted compromise. Uh, some people would have said she was naive about that. 
Uh, Bob Reichar and I were both on a panel talking about her after this latest book came out. And one of the things we both said about her is that optimism was just part of her temperament because a lot of people question it. They said, really? Uh, you expect Democrats and Republicans to be compromising with each other in a post-Trump world? Because we were in a Trump, Trump, post-Trump world by then. And she thought we still could. And she, of course, formed a commission with Pete Domenici, and they put out uh, a report on fiscal policy. She was also a member of the, the other uh, fiscal commission, the one that Paul Ryan was on, was headed by, oh, who was it headed by? The guy from Wyoming, the senator from Wyoming. Simpson. Yeah, Simpson Bowles. And she was a member of Simpson Bowles. And she, and Simpson Bowles did come close to um, making a grand compromise work. Awfully close. And, but I think, you know, that was the last time we were very close. We haven't been very close since. You know, um, it's not something that much associated with either party now, fiscal responsibility, but it used to be strong in on both sides. And, and I guess, what was the legacy there? Uh, you know, because in some ways, you are hearkening back to an older tradition of liberalism that I think was more class-oriented as opposed to race and ethnic orientation. Um, and was a little more no-nonsense, not just in terms of people like Alice Rivlin, but in terms of its approach to governance as well. And I wonder where that perspective came from. Well, I think one way to put that is that um, it used to be that our debates were more about economics and less about culture. And Alice and I used to talk about that. And Alice would say, and I totally agreed with her, that you can find compromise along an economic spectrum because it is a spectrum more easily than you can on cultural issues because cultural issues tend to be zero one issues and tend to be more emotionally um, intense. You know, either you're pro-life or you're not pro-life. Um, whereas on taxes, you know, you could be for a better tax system and you could have some kind of compromise between liberals and conservatives on what that might look like because it wasn't a zero-one decision. It was a decision along a, um, you know, a spectrum. And now conservatives seem to be really uh, playing the culture card. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I should even say playing the culture card. They played the culture card for a while for political reasons. But now I think they're so into it, it's really hard to for them to move away from it. The old you know, supply-side economics, the old neoliberalism, the old limited government cut taxes and reduce regulations, uh, you don't hear about that very much anymore. And to the extent it's still there, it's kind of snuck in the back door, as I think it was in 2017. Uh, Trump went along with it, but it wasn't his big idea. Yeah, agreed. Um, in 1970, you became chairman of the Department of Economics at Goucher College. Were you tempted to become an academic for the duration of your career? Not very much. One of the things you have to remember is that, again, as a person who was committed to my marriage, I had to make compromises all the time with my husband and he with me. And, and we did make compromises. 
And at some point, uh, I was offered many jobs, for example, as presidents of small, you know, liberal arts colleges, or asked at least to interview for them. I don't know whether I would have gotten them. But um, I was at one point in my life very much in demand for lots of leadership positions. But I wouldn't take them or even interview for them because it would have required leaving my husband or having a commuting marriage. And he did become president of NYU, and I had an important job in Washington at the time. So we did commute for five years between Washington and New York. And we didn't like it very much, uh, but Washington to New York was easier than some other commutes would have been. So to skip through some of your later career, you went to the um, Urban Institute, one of the Great Society products. Mm -hmm. Uh, and eventually, as you say, uh, after service in the Clinton administration, ended up at, at Brookings. I thought of your book recently because there was, frankly, a somewhat horrifying set of poll results that came from a Wall Street Journal NORC poll that I'm guessing you might have seen as well. It was published in the Wall Street Journal on March 27th under the title, America Pulls Back from the Values That Once Defined It. And according to this Wall Street Journal NORC poll, um, Compared to 1998, the Americans surveyed believe, who believe that patriotism is very important dropped from 70% in 1998 to 38% today. Those who believe religion is important dropped from 62 to 39%. Those who believe having children is very important dropped from 59% to 30%. Community involvement from 47 to 27%. But money is very important, rose from 31 to 43%. And these declines are sharpest, particularly among young people compared to older people. And there's any number of other, again, rather bleak statistics that surfaced from these polls. Um, for more than three decades, this NORC organization has asked Americans whether life for their children's generation will be better than it has been for their own, uh, using its general social survey. And this year, 78% said they don't feel confident that is the case, which is the highest share since the survey began asking the question, uh, in 1990. So, you know, you had in your book, The Forgotten Americans, a second chapter entitled, What Went Wrong? And I feel like maybe now the question is, what went wronger? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, here we are in this rather bleak situation, like I said, where a lot of Americans feel that the country's best days are behind them, uh, where they no longer believe in a lot of the values that seem to define the country. And I think, you know, this is actually something quite similar to your book asking, you know, for these people who feel left behind, depressed and discouraged about the country, what can be done? So first point, I think, is um, on the on the poll, on the attitudinal poll, uh, I think, as you suggested, that is largely a generational um, effect. In other words, it's, you know, one group being replaced by another younger generations replacing older ones in the samples. I don't know if it's all that. I wouldn't uh, suspect it is all that, but I suspect it's largely that. On what went wrong, um, definitely this whole question about, you know, achieving the American dream and thinking that your children can do better than you can. Uh, the polls have said for a long time that people are increasingly pessimistic about that. And that pessimism is grounded in reality. You probably are very familiar with Raj Chetty and his team's work at Harvard on what's happened to upward mobility uh, since the 1950s. In my generation, um, 
your probability, your likelihood of doing better economically than your parents was about 90%. For people born in the 1980s, it was about 50%. And as you go down to younger generations, although we don't have the data yet on their adult incomes, it's probably lower still. And so, you know, upward mobility has definitely been going away. Um, now, I think what's really interesting that Raj Chetty also shows is that when you ask why has upward mobility declined so much, there are two reasons. One is less economic growth, less rapid economic growth. And the other is more inequality, growth that's less broadly distributed. And the second factor is just as important or more important than the first. Which is part of what leads you to say that economic growth is not enough, although, of course, it is a desirable thing. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the people reasons people got ahead in the past is because they not just they, they didn't just ride the growth escalator up. They actually traded places with someone else on the escalator. In other words, they're relative position in the income ranking wet up more than it does now. Uh, there seems to be more more stickiness now in terms of relative mobility relative to your parents. What are the other factors that have changed over time to make the American dream more difficult to attain, particularly for uh, those Americans without a college degree? Well, I think it's um, technology, it's trade, and it's uh, an education and training system that is not well aligned with the what a modern society and a modern economy demands. And I think it's been, you know, all three, and there are probably other factors, but I think those were the three I emphasized in the book. And, and by technology, you largely meant automation. As well. Sorry? By technology, you largely meant automation. Yes, but not just automation. I mean, as jobs get more skilled and sophisticated, they require more education. I mean, let's take Siemens. I talked about this in the book. And they had a plant in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and they had something like 800 openings. And these were just for skilled manufacturing jobs. And they weren't necessarily automated, but they required more skills than what was required in the past. And there were thousands of people who applied And only 15% of those who applied passed the tests in basic reading, uh, math, and maybe, you know, a couple of other basic things to even get over the line to be considered for the jobs. And, you know, I mean, I could go on and on and do in the book with statistics about this. The military has found this. The military is finding that most of young Americans today, I'm talking about like 18 to 24-year-olds, are not qualified to join the military even if they wanted to. Now, the military isn't, you know, that automated, but it is a lot more technologically sophisticated than it used to be. Mm-hmm. There also is a, has been a breakdown of what you have famously called the success sequence, wherein you, the aspiring upwardly mobile American, graduate from school, high school, perhaps college, Uh, you work full-time, and then you get married before you have children. Tell me something about the work that led up to that 
particular formulation and finding? Uh, well, there was a point when I was working with Ron Haskins. Uh, Ron Haskins and I co-directed the Center for Children and Families at Brookings, and he had I had come from the Clinton administration, and he had been in the Bush White House and also been the senior staffer on Ways and Means when welfare reform was passed. And he's a psychologist and I'm an economist, but we teamed up and always worked together very productively. And we got interested in this whole question of children's trajectories and why some are successful and others aren't. And so I had my research assistant uh, look at the data from the current population survey from the census and figure out uh, what the correlates of upward mobility were. And those three really stood out. It was a pretty simple-minded analysis, but it spoke volumes. And it showed that if you did all the three things that you just described, graduate at least from high school, work full-time, and get married before you have children, or at least be in a committed long-term relationship, your chances of being poor plummeted from like 14% to 2%. And your chances of being middle class or better rose to around 70% from something much lower. So we kept doing that with uh, additional data. And then uh, other people like Brad Wilcox got into the game and did more work using even better data. And then I even built a much more sophisticated model and controlled for a lot more variables and still finding basically the same patterns. And it's a nice, simple story. Uh, just do these three things and you'll be successful. And there are now um, junior high schools who are very interested in this and who are teaching this to their students. So simple to say, yet harder and harder to follow in practice, it would seem. What is responsible for that? Well, that's right. And of course, many of my, my liberal friends and colleagues said, well, Bell, that's very hard to do, all those three things, if you come from a poor family. And that's correct. So this brings up the whole question of, you know, what's the responsibility of individuals versus the responsibility of society or government to help people on a positive trajectory? And I think it's some of both. And I don't have much patience for those who say it's all one or all the other, because it seems to me they have to go hand in hand. You have to give people a helping hand, but you also, and open doors, but you also have to expect them to walk through the doors when they're there uh, or take a hold of the hand when it's there. And so I think it's a very uh, mixed picture, and it varies from individual to individual and even from neighborhood to neighborhood. Uh, so one of the reasons that Ron and I were good colleagues is because we both saw it as a more complex picture than people on either the far left or the far right. Something that's quite interesting to me about the whole project around the Forgotten Americans is that you wrote this book based on this intense survey of the statistics and data. And then after having written it, you actually went out into the country and spoke to these forgotten Americans uh, in a number of cities and more or less, I guess, reality checked some of the conclusions you'd drawn in the book against the situation you found on the ground. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked about that because I did that after the book went to press. 
And so I couldn't get the results into the book, but I felt strongly that I needed to do that, that I was too much in my own bubble in you know Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway, as they say, and that I was one of those you know intellectual elites that didn't understand the so-called working class. So I actually hired a firm uh, to help me with this, to do it very professionally, and we uh, they recruited for me a group of people who fit the definition uh, that I gave you at the beginning of this conversation about who the working, the forgotten Americans were. And um, so none of them had college degrees. And we went to three cities, uh, St. Louis, Greensboro, North Carolina, and Syracuse, New York. And I was fascinated because the people we talked to were so much more complicated than what you saw in a lot of the literature. I'll give you one interesting example. When we debate the minimum wage in Washington between liberals and conservatives, you know, conservatives say they don't like the minimum wage because it's going to, you know, reduce hiring of the disadvantaged. And um, liberals say, uh, well, without a higher minimum wage, uh, employers are going to take advantage of workers and they're just not going to have enough money to live on. Well, the forgotten Americans had um, mixed feelings about the minimum wage, but a lot of them didn't like it, even though they were making minimum wage or very close to it themselves. And so when we ask them, why don't you like the minimum wage when your own wages are so low? Here's what they said, which I'd never thought about before. Many of them were middle-aged. Let's say they're 40 or 50 years old. And they said, well, I'm making $16 an hour or I'm making $13 an hour, whatever they were making. I don't want some kid who's 18 or 19 or 20 years old coming on and making as much money as I do. Uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you cite Arlie Hochschild uh, in your work, and she has surveyed Americans of this type who feel that others are cutting in line in front mm -hmm. of them in some sense. That's the phrase that they most often use. That's what it, that sounds like. Yes. No, I, I cited her work a lot in my book, and I loved her metaphor about people cutting in line. And, you know, she, she and her, I think her husband as well, lived with in a, in a uh, working class, mostly white community, I think. In Louisiana. In Louisiana for a year, yeah. And she, she, she finally got it. And she used that metaphor. People feel like they're standing in line to get to the top of the mountain. And people like immigrants and minority groups and even women are cutting in line and not allowing them to get to the top. And I think there's really a lot of what behavioral economists call loss aversion going on there. This is a group that was used to being respected, used to being a little bit top, atop of the hierarchy, at least in their own communities, and they feel displaced. You know, uh, we talked earlier about the concept of, uh, of radical centrism. And I think the fact that you actually are approaching these working class Americans who do overwhelmingly vote against your party um, with empathy and trying to understand is itself a kind of act of radical moderation. Uh, the phrase forgotten Americans, in fact, I don't know if this is exactly where you took it from, but certainly that is the phrase that Donald Trump used after his 2016 election win 
to say that his uh, was a great win for the forgotten Americans, the men and women who work in the factories and have been scorned and despised by the elites. And I also think it's true that the Democrats have had a problem with that group uh, in recent years, not just in terms of them not voting for them, but in terms of not caring that much about them or accusing them of uh, benefiting from white privilege and, and all the rest of it. So I, I wonder, again, if you are in some sense channeling an older New Deal Democratic way of thinking about these uh problems that seems in a way both radical and conservative in the present circumstance. First of all, I definitely got the title of the book from what Trump had said. And of course, as I point out in the book, even though he told them they would be forgotten no more, once he was elected, he sure did forget about them. Uh, most of his policies were actually very inimical to their well-being. And, you know, even though I like to understand this group and respect them and do not want to demonize them in the kinds of ways you just suggested, I really also want to say that one of the reasons why it's so hard to find compromise now is because this problem isn't symmetrical. What's ha- in my view, what's happened to the Republican Party is very different than what's happened to the Democratic Party. The Republican Party and political scientists have shown this, and I know this is your more your field than mine, but have shown that Republicans have moved much further right than Democrats have moved left. And granted, the gap between them is larger than it's ever been, but it's not because of a symmetrical move. And I actually do feel that asymmetric polarization used to be a bigger phenomenon a few years ago, but particularly after George Floyd's murder, Democrats have moved really far left on cultural issues um, in a way that's not equivalent to what the Republicans have done, but is is at least uh, similar to it. And I found it interesting that in your book, you actually wrote, this is 2018, it would seem that if they want to expand their bases, Republicans need to move left on economic issues and Democrats need to move right on cultural issues. Needless to say, that's not what's happened. Yes. No, I actually agree with that. That was a great statement you just made. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, So tell us about the GI Bill for workers that you proposed as a way of ameliorating the situation of these forgotten Americans. Well, going back to the success sequence for a moment, remember, and also to mainstream American values, uh, what I argue in the book is it's all about education, work, and family. And the success sequence ties them together and says that's the way to go. So I wrote a book about the family back in 2014, and I wrote a book, this, The Forgotten Americans, was really the focus was on work. And the work, the work piece of it, by the way, is very important in the empirical findings about the success sequence. If you work full time, even at a low wage, you're going to do pretty well. And if you have two earners in your family, you're going to be especially uh, helped. But um, I now need to write a book about education. And I had some stuff about education, even in the Forgotten Americans, and I've certainly written papers and briefs about it. But I'm increasingly concerned about it. And so the GI Bill was about uh, adults and the fact that they need training and retraining. And we do a terrible job in the U.S. in providing training and retraining not nearly as well as Europeans do. We don't have apprenticeships to nearly the same extent. 
Uh, we haven't really come up with very many successful programs for helping less skilled workers or dislocated workers. And so I go into all of that and um, say we need to do better. But I think the other thing that I talk a little bit about in the Forgotten Americas, but really needs a whole book, is the K-12 education system. Everything shows that our students, uh, we're spent, we spend more on K-12 education than any other advanced country, and our students are doing poorly on international tests. So something's not working. And if you ask me what's not working, the biggest thing is we don't pay teachers enough. Now, I want to give students more choice, and I want to um, hold teachers more accountable for performance. And I want to hold kids more uh, accountable for performance. But you, this goes back to the changing status of women in our society and the fact that for historical reasons, the well-educated women didn't have too many other occupations available to them, so they became teachers. And they're still, I think, too low. Uh, rather low paid for what they do. Let me just uh, mention the book that you mentioned in passing. Uh, your 2014 book was Generation Unbound, Drifting into Sex and Parenthood Without Marriage. And I believe uh, you also helped to found what's now known as uh, Power to Decide, but which used to be known as the National Campaign to Prevent Teen and Unplanned Pregnancy. Oh, wow, Jeff, you've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And it actually does seem that that has been a success uh, in the American political picture, that in fact the rates of teen pregnancy have come down significantly. Very significantly, about 70%, according to the latest data, as I best can recall. And we think that was uh, a success, that campaign. We didn't do it alone, of course, but we provided the leadership and got people in communities all around the country and in different sectors of our society involved in helping us. And now that, you know, abortion is going to be much less accessible, this whole emphasis on helping people only have children that they want to have is even more important. And that requires putting an emphasis on not having them too early and only having them when you have a committed partner and only having them when you feel ready to have them. And, you know, if I, I mean, I was shocked by the data that was in that earlier 2014 book. If you look at women, single women under the age of 30, and by the way, today, especially if you're educated, you don't get married much before age 30. Um, so looking at all single women below the age of 30, a majority, a majority of the pregnancies that they have are unplanned, unintended, unanticipated. And that's not the best way to bring a child into the world. So I do feel quite strongly about reducing not only teen pregnancy, but also unplanned pregnancies amongst uh, young single women who really don't want to have a baby yet. Right. So you, in this GI Bill for American Workers, were proposing a handful of basic approaches for the left behind. Uh, number one, as you said, was more vocational education and adjustment assistance for workers who'd been adversely affected by new developments in technology and trade, including a chance to retrain or relocate. You also called for a broad-based tax credit to bump up inadequate wages, uh, a new role for the private sector in training and rewarding workers, a social insurance system focused on lifelong education and family care in addition to retirement, and then 
I don't know if it was part of your this group, but you use definitely an emphasis on repairing the culture through national service. Right. Great summary on your part. And let me mention the part about social insurance, because I think it was new and, and uh, interesting part of my agenda. I have gotten very interested not just in how much money people have, but how much time they have. And in my very most recent book with Richard Reeves, A New Contract for the Middle Class, we talk a lot about time, uh, what we call the time squeeze on middle class families. And basically, you get to the midpoint of your life and you're taking care of kids still. You may also be taking care of your elderly parents. You may need to adjust to the economy, which means you, means you need some new training. And you can't do it because you don't have the time for it. So I want to add a new plank to the social insurance system, to Social Security, basically, that says we're going to give you an account as part of the Social Security system that you can use in an, in a, um, uh, an approved training program uh, to get retrained or relocated or start a new business in midlife. And I'm going to keep this fiscally responsible by cutting back on programs for retirement. But I'm going to shift more resources to, to the younger generation and to the middle-aged working classes for these kinds of purposes and also for family care, for paid leave. So I thought that was kind of um, innovative and it hasn't gotten much discussion. So... I could go on and on about each of these planks you just mentioned and happy to talk about any of the others, but I wanted to give that one some priority. You know, I liked all of those uh, proposals. And what struck me as interesting was that a number of them overlapped with the kinds of ideas that Oren Cass was putting forward at that time uh, in a book that was often reviewed alongside yours, uh, The Once and Future uh, American Worker. And yet, you know, even though the Republicans have really tried to brand themselves as the party of the working class, and they are disproportionately getting the votes of those without college educations. They don't seem to have any interest, really, in putting forward policies along these lines to help their base, uh, who could use this help. Do you see that changing anytime soon? I don't see it changing, and but you're exactly right about what you just said, and it goes back to what I said earlier, that you know, uh, conservatives have the right value messages, but the wrong policies, and Democrats have the reverse. So, you know, and on Oren Cass, he and I were part of a uh, Brookings AEI working group on the working class, and we talked extensively about this tax credit for uh, low-wage workers, and we pretty much agreed about it. We definitely agreed on the value of the proposal. I think what we disagreed about was how to pay for it. But we were pretty close, and we had that proposal in the report that Brookings and AEI put out about the working class. So, yeah, there, in intellectual circles, there's plenty of room for compromise and agreement. The problem is when you get to the um, politics of the current Congress, and that's where things are stuck. Yeah, um, I, I'm... Definitely doing a little bit of both sides in here, but mm -hmm. I did notice that in your book you warned of the possibility that Democrats would 
overplay their hand, as you put it, pleasing their base, but neglecting the moderate but quiet middle that wants stability, pragmatism, and dignity in public life, not a new swerve to the left. <laughs> that was rather uh, prophetic, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, I did say that, yes, and I, I, still, I still agree with it. So um, since you'd mentioned the Richard Reeves book, A New Contract with the Middle Class, uh, the five core ingredients you identified for a good quality of life for the middle class, uh, well, really for all people, were money, time, relationships, health, and respect. How did you and Richard come up with those five? Well, again, it was a, really a matter of having lots of conversation. And we both believe pretty strongly that um, this is not all about economics. In other words, the well-being of the middle class is not all about economics. Economics is a piece of it. Uh, material goods matter and having enough income to support a family matters. And we wanted to do something about that. But we were also concerned that that's not the only way to have a flourishing life. You do need time for other things besides going to work. You especially need time for your family. And secondly, you do need relationships. Relationships are not only uh, critical to your general sense of well-being, but they're even critical to your health. I've been really struck by how strong the research on that is. Um, you know, people who are lonely or depressed or whatever, they have terrible health problems. So we're both concerned about relationships, very, very concerned. We even wanted to make it the first chapter in the book. And some of our critics said, no, no, you've got to start with the economics. And so we gave into that. And then health is obvious. And Richard is very big on the problem of obesity in our society and how it contributes to poor health. And also he's very big, uh, both of us were, on the importance of mental health. So we said, let's tax sugary beverages. We weren't optimistic that that would happen politically, but we thought, well, what, what are we here for except to put out ideas like that and argue for them? And on mental health, we wanted everybody to have access to cognitive behavioral therapy in, in the UK, where Richard is from, as you know. Uh, they do have access for free uh, counseling through something like cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy. And then the respect chapter was really something he was very strong on. And it was his way of saying, we need to live in a pluralist society. And in a pluralist society, and we are, of course, a very, very diverse society, you have to respect other groups and other people. And I think that was the better way, the more positive way to talk about that instead of just saying, you know, we have a lot of problems with prejudice against various groups and uh, structural racism and structural sexism and all that. And just saying we need to respect groups was a more positive message, I think. And respecting the white working class, for example. I noticed the book you did with Richard, in a sense, previewed some of the themes in his book uh, of boys and men, mm -hmm. in particular, the emphasis on getting uh, more men into what you called the heel professions. Right, right. Yes, we wrote a, an article actually for the New York Times, something like five or six or seven years ago about all of this and talked about heel jobs and some of the other themes 
that are in his new book, which is a wonderful book. I want to give it a big shout out. It's very readable. It's very new. It's very fresh. It's very well researched. It's got great data in it. I have to say that I don't, uh, I have huge respect for what he's done and I agree with a great deal of it, but I do think he is talking about a very thin slice in time, you know, just the last few decades in a thin slice of geography, basically, you know, the U.S. or other advanced Western countries. If you looked at all of history and you looked at the entire globe, you wouldn't find that men were struggling. You would find it was women who were struggling. And they're still struggling in places like Afghanistan. Uh, yes, they've overcome men on the education front in the U.S. and some other advanced countries. But in some other countries, they're not even allowed to go to school. And they're not even allowed to dress in certain ways. So I could go on and on about why I think there's still a problem for women. But I think what was fresh and new and what really well done uh, by Richard was to point out that we have gotten too much in the habit of saying this is all about women when it's also about men. I actually had uh, Richard on my podcast the week that his book came out, which is one of the many benefits of having Ted Geyer, the former executive vice president of Brookings, become the president of the Scandinavian <laughs> Center. I wanted to talk about one more article that you published relatively recently in Democracy Journal called Saving Democracy. And this struck me because, in a way, you're writing about the threats to our democracy, and these were related to but not quite the same as most of the themes you'd written about uh, throughout your career. Um, but I found it a fascinating article, and I particularly, I think, empathized with what you call the three foundational truths, which are important to understand as we're talking about our present imperiled democratic moment here in the United States. Uh, first, you said human nature is flawed, and we humans are especially vulnerable to myopia, to emotionally satisfying but irrational beliefs, and to loyalty to our own tribe. Second, an increasingly complex and technologically advanced society offers huge opportunities for progress against poverty, disease, environmental catastrophe, and the horrors of war. But it also poses near existential threats to our well-being and ultimate survival. And third, this combination of human frailties and the risks and opportunities posed by new technologies requires stronger, not weaker, collective institutions, and above all, a well-functioning democracy. And you had a great quote by the biologist E.O. Wilson, who said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. That was a that was great very... summary. <laughs> yeah. For bringing it up. So, you know, we're actually in the situation where, in some sense, democracy is precisely what's got us into the situation where we're actually having a threat to our democracy, perhaps excessive democracy or the wrong kind of democracy or democracy that isn't formed by expertise and perspective. Yeah, I'm very, very concerned about um, our democracy, uh, along with many other people, of course. And, you know, right now, as we speak today, former President Trump is appearing at the courthouse in New York uh, for his arraignment. And I've been shocked that 62% of the American public think that this arraignment or this charge is political. And the reason I find that so disturbing is because we all like to talk about the rule of law, you know, on both sides of the aisle. 
uh, we're usually quite um, respectful of the rule of law should be adhered to. No one is above the law, even a president or a former president of the United States. And what I fear is happening now is that that norm to respect the law may be disappearing. And it's disappearing because Trump and his ilk are so disrespectful of it and have done such a unfortunately good job of undermining it. But once we don't have that norm anymore, we're in deep, deep trouble. So sorry to get on my soapbox about that, but that's uh, very concerning to me. So one of the things you're calling for as a way of getting our democracy back on track is to do a better job of preparing citizens for the tasks of democratic governance, which would seem to fit in with your concern about our inadequate educational system as well. Yes, I think that voters are not very well educated and informed. And to some extent, that's because why would they be? They're too busy to study these issues the way you and I do. And they uh, therefore make fairly superficial decisions and are easily riled up. That is the Paleolithic brain piece of the E.O. Wilson quote. It's also something that um, I think John Haidt talks about very wonderfully. And I used his metaphor a lot in this most recent article, which is that we are like a rider on an elephant. We think we're in control of the elephant. Uh, the elephant, in this case, representing the unconscious. Functioning. And the, the elephant is our emotions and our unconscious uh, passions. And we don't realize that it's the elephant that is so often in control. But anyway, without going on and on about that, I think this is a very important insight and that we need institutions as guardrails and as governing mechanisms for our frailties and our often irrational behavior. And we don't have very strong institutions right now. And, you know, democracy is is the one that seems most in trouble right now and the most important right now. Uh, I must ask, Bell, uh, many of your contemporaries are content to play cards, uh, perhaps have a few drinks by the pool, and yet you seem to be more productive than ever. Uh, why is that? Well, you're kind to say that because I am not as productive as I used to be, but you're right that I am not content to just uh, sit by a pool and drink a gin and tonic. I guess I have, for for the same reason when I was young, I was not content to just be, you know, a good wife and mother. I'm not content now to be just your ordinary canasta-playing elderly person. So I don't know why, but it's just, I guess, who I am, and I, I hope that I haven't gotten... Um, too feeble-minded in my old age to keep doing something or other. Evidently not. Um, this whole conversation has been hugely fun, so thank you for that. Great, and I've enjoyed it as well. I guess there's a final question then. Um, you know, we've seen Richard's statistics about the deteriorating situation of boys and men in this country, but at the same time, the CDC recently came out with a rather horrifying set of statistics about particularly mental problems plaguing young women in this country. 
Um, and you overcame a lot of obstacles in your own career. And it is interesting that at a time when seemingly young women are achieving more than ever before and fewer obstacles are in front of them than at any point in our history, for the most part, they're feeling so overwhelmed and hopeless. Uh, what kind of advice would you give or do you give to young women whom you encounter? Well, first of all, they rarely ask me, which is interesting in and of itself, but I think I would counsel them to have enough self-confidence in themselves to walk through more doors and to speak up and to get the kind of education and uh, experience that they're going to need if they're ambitious, and that you know, society isn't going to hand it to them on a silver platter. And I don't think most of them think that. So I don't want to be misunderstood here. But I would say that the kind of research assistants and analysts that we get at Brookings, um, many of whom are women, by the, by, by the way, Brookings is doing great on um, the proportion of our staff that is female, and, and also the proportion of our staff that are people of color. But uh, I'm proud of that and proud of the diversity that we've achieved just in the last five to seven years. But those women at Brookings are doing great, most of them. So I, I think we can't generalize too much. But you're, but you're right. There are a lot of teenagers who are having huge problems. And I think a lot of it, as uh, Jonathan Haidt again argues, is due to social media and that's been a negative influence in most of our lives. And, and maybe as a, an actual final question, uh, do you feel more optimistic or pessimistic about the fate of the American experiment uh, going forward? Right now, it's hard to be optimistic. Uh, but I realize that historically, we've gone through a lot of tough periods and, you know, you have more of a background in history than I do. You could probably talk about this more cogently than I can. But, you know, obviously we had a civil war. We had the civil rights revolution. Uh, we had Watergate. We had Vietnam. It's not always been easy sledding. And we seem to have held together in the past. That said, one of the books that I read that scared me the most recently, and I don't know if you've had him on your podcast, was David French's uh, book, the title, which I can't remember. But he actually talks about a possible civil war. Uh, and he has two scenarios. One begins in California over guns, and the other one begins in Texas over abortion. And um, they are fascinatingly realistic scenarios. And they give you a lot to think about that's not, that's kind of scary. Scary times, but I am so grateful for your work uh, and for your joining me here today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Isabel Sahil. Well, thank you ever so much, Jeff. I enjoyed it enormously. And thank you all for listening to the Vital Center podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcasting platform. And if you have any questions, comments, or other responses, please include them along with your rating or send us an email at contact at niskanencenter.org. Thanks as always to our technical director, Christy Eshelman, our sound engineer, Ray Ingenieri, and the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C. Music